Welcome to this edition of Deep Medicine. In recent decades, a huge amount of investment has been poured into unravelling the role of amyloid in Alzheimer's disease, culminating recently in the approval of several monoclonal antibodies directed at removing amyloid from the brain in patients who have early Alzheimer's disease, as witnessed by changes on their scans and through the presence of amyloid in their CSF. Of course, amyloid can cause pathology in many other organs other than the brain. A lot less energy has been put into examining the role of amyloid in disrupting different tissue systems. One area of great interest has been the heart. There are a group of patients who have a hereditary cardiomyopathy that is driven by amyloid deposition. And then also there are different disease states that can uh, occur spontaneously in patients that result in cardiomyopathy as an outcome. In this edition of Deep Medicine, I had a chance to catch up with Marie Schroeder, who's a principal scientist at Nova Nordisk in Copenhagen. And Marie has spent a lot of her career looking at the role of amyloid in cardiomyopathy. I had a chance to discuss with her the similarities and differences between the roles of amyloid in the heart and the brain, and what the current and future therapeutic landscapes could look like to treat patients who have cardiac amyloid. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome Marie Schroeder, who works at Nova Nordisk. And um, Marie, uh, thank you for joining. Um, perhaps if we could start by you giving us a bit of a description of what you do at Nova. Absolutely. And it's such a pleasure to be here, Alex. Thank you so much for, for inviting me to, to talk about myself, which is always, always fun. Um, but at Novo, so as you, um, as I know you are aware, we're a historically diabetes um, and obesity focused company. We started our, um, our internal research efforts in cardiovascular diseases about five years ago, just around the time I was hired. Um, and of course, this was on the back of the leader tri trial data and some of the really continuously beautiful data that we've generated around GLP-1 um, agonists in, in cardiovascular disease. Um, so I started in Novo as an in vivo pharmacologist um, in 2018. Uh, I haven't really done much in vivo pharmacology since then, I have to say. It's been a really, really fun five years now of, of kind of ramping up our, our research efforts and, and sort of developing strategic priorities, developing internal tools and teams and um, collaborators and network and all of those sorts of things. So my day-to-day -day is very much um, quite a, a wide variety of things. So of course, we're running a lot of internal um, early projects and part of my role is ideation and the very early piece of project management. So what would be a good target in, in cardiovascular diseases or other kind of related indications? Um, my, my particular expertise is in heart failure and cardiomyopathy, so most of my projects tend to have some sort of angle um, related to the heart or to cardiomyocytes. Um, so internal project management um, and, and mentoring and advice and inputs. Then another really big and very gratifying part of my work um, is, is kind of engaging with external collaborations. So whether it's identifying great academics that we would like to work with, um, kind of getting those, shaping the, the sort of collaboration structure, getting endorsements and funding and that sort of thing, and then managing the, the subsequent collaborations. That's obviously extremely fun. And one of the best, the best parts of working in pharma, I would say, is engaging with so many diverse um, and really passionate, knowledgeable people from around the world that are doing their job with such 
kind of great passion and, and interest. Um, and then the third piece is, is also more external facing, but is um, around doing due diligence with biotech. So of course, now that we have a new cardiovascular strategy, a big piece of our a big piece of that is, is obtaining external opportunities so we can kind of jumpstart our, our pipeline a little bit. Um, and so that's been, been a huge part of the focus of, of Nova Nordisk in CV and kind of other indication areas generally. Fantastic, thank you very much. And that, that's a lovely diverse uh, day job to, to, to have. And we'll, we'll talk a bit later about some of those external collaborations because I know that, that that's uh, a very fruitful avenue for a lot of the work you're doing. Um, I know there's, there's a couple of areas that um, the company has it in a more advanced state that were of great interest. Uh, and the first one was around uh, some of the inflammatory state, systemic inflammatory state and the impact that that may have uh, on uh, the cardiovascular system and on in heart failure particularly. Uh, and then also uh, around amyloid and we'll, we'll come to the amyloid piece uh, after that. But perhaps if we could just start with a bit of a conversation about uh, the inflammatory state. And I know you're, there's an interest in targeting IL-6 as opposed to the IL-6 receptor. So perhaps if you could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So, um, and just to be clear, I'm not part of the, um, the Ziltabicumab um, project team and I'm speaking with, um, you know, some, some knowledge, but I'm certainly not an, an expert in the field. But um, we acquired uh, our Ziltabicumab, our anti-IL-6 antibody, um, which as you said, targets IL-6 and not the receptor a few years ago from a biotech called Corvidia. Um, and they, that was on the back of some really, really exciting phase two data that are, are now published um, where, of course, you can use CRP as a very kind of proximal biomarker to look at effects of IL-6. Um, and the, the genetics behind this target in cardiovascular disease are also extremely strong, um, really seems to be, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, there's definitely quite a strong link when you, when you do sort of more advanced genetic methods between IL-6 and signaling and um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So that's obviously really nice to see a lot of associations as well. So increased levels in, in plaques and heart failure and et cetera, many types of tissue. So that was kind of our motivation for going that route. Um, you made a really interesting point that this, this antibody targets the ligand as opposed to the receptor, which is a little bit unique. And I think the reason why um, this antibody has been so successful in doing so is its affinity for the ligand is just extremely, extremely high. So again, I'm not on the team, so I can't tell you the exact 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 number, but it's sort of picomolar level affinity as opposed to what you would normally see for an antibody. So because the, the chemical matter is just so fantastic um, on that structural level, where it, it seems to really, um, it does it when you're sort of binding the ligand, it, it doesn't really come off. So you can, you don't really have to worry about changes or, or that's the theory anyway, which of course we're, we're trying to prove at the moment that if you can really find and stick to IL-6 that you're just completely inhibiting signaling. So that allows us to go for, for ligand. Um, but yeah, and now we're, we're running um, with that antibody in a few clinical trials. So we have the, the Zeus trial, which is in atherosclerotic CBD, a sort of um, cardiovascular outcome, you know, big Nova Nordisk style trial that, that we'll read out in a while, which we're very excited about. And then we're also looking in, in heart failure, um, both kind of precision medicine approaches. They're governed by CRP levels. Um, so high sensitivity, high sensitivity CRP needs to be above a certain mark for inclusion in either of these trials. And yeah, we're really excited to see how they read out. Most recently, extremely controversial in terms of the licensing of a, of a couple of products in that, 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 that space. 
Um, but it's super interesting about what amyloid does to the tissues that it uh, invades and, and how it causes the problems that it causes. Uh, and I know in the heart you've talked as obviously uh, something that's not very parallel, which is this electromechanical function of the heart and how you might improve that, which clearly isn't something in the brain that we have to, 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 to focus on. Um, so yeah, it'd be really useful just, I guess, to start with some thoughts about what's going on with amyloid, uh, how it happens, and then what are the downstream consequences of that before we think about what, what uh, impact we might be able to have by ameliorating that. Yeah, so um, it, they're all great questions, and it, the field is in such a dynamic place right now that many of the questions we're starting to know the answer to, but many we, of course, don't. Um, but in the heart, there's sort of two main forms of, of amyloid disease in the heart. There's other, they're all, you know, fairly somewhat, somewhat rare, um, but we'll focus on two main ones. So um, light chain amyloid tends to be a consequence of um, a of a, a sort of blood disease. So light chain is uh, multiple myeloma is the best example. Um, so the, the sort of malignant cells give off this light chain protein, these light chain proteins that then oligomerize and start to accumulate in part. And so for many of these diseases, cardiac um, amyloidosis um, is a sort of form of restrictive cardiomyopathy is actually what can be, be fatal in many circumstances. Um, and then there's another form of amyloid disease, TTR, um, transthyretin um, amyloid cardiomyopathy. And TTR is quite a highly abundant uh, protein in, in a person's plasma. Um, it's produced in the liver and it is, its normal function is to um, go around in tetramers. So four, four different TTR proteins come together in this very distinctive tetrameric function and they're involved in vitamin A transport. transport. But um, there's a, a very, very long list of mutations to TTR that can occur that can affect the folding of the protein. So it can affect its ability to stay in um, stable monomers and of course in the even more stable tetrameric state. And interestingly, some of these mutations actually form a protective phenotype. So these, some of the um, mutations seem to form a TTR that is just rock solid, very, very stable, and actually can be linked to protection in terms of lifespan and protection from neurodegenerative disease, which is, I mean, quite uh, compelling in itself. Um, but then more of the mutations are linked to instability in, in the TTR um, tetramer. And what can happen is that the, the tetramer can kind of unfold. So the, the monomers can become prone to misfolding and sort of oligomerizing, not in the sort of normal tetrameric form, but in kind of other ways. Um, this is very analogous to what you know from Alzheimer's, I expect. And that sort of oligomerized, these oligomerized TTR particles can start accumulating in different places. Um, for the hereditary forms of amyloid disease, that tends to be in the nerves to cause a, a, a very severe neuropathy um, or in the heart, um, which of course causes a cardiomyopathy and other organs can be in play too, but those are kind of the, the most dominant ones. Um, and so there's also another form of TTR amyloid disease, which are in people that don't have mutations. And this is so wild type, if you will, um, TTR amyloid disease. And this is probably about 60% of the patients actually and um, no one really knows why this, this happens. There's a number of theories that the TTR is proteolized in a different way and then starts to accumulate. Um, but what is clear, and there have been a number of studies um, from Johns Hopkins and from many other groups showing that if patients, if people kind of live long enough, that you'll start accumulating TTR in the heart without question. So if you look at cardiac biopsies from 90 year olds, like 90% of the people will have TTR accumulating in the heart. And those people, you probably can't say they, they, that their reason of death was TTR cardiomyopathy. They probably 
died with TTR accumulation rather than from TTR accumulation. Um, but then when you look at younger patients, you do sort of have this very distinctive phenotype of very, very thick um, ventricles, you know, 12 plus centimeter thick, or millimeter, sorry, uh, thick ventricles, um, very, very stiff walls, um, very arrhythmia prone, that kind of thing. So what in these people, um, this, this idea of wild type um, or hereditary TTR amyloidosis um, becomes quite a severe and, and scary diagnosis because people's hearts just get so giant and filled with amyloid and just stiff that they can't really beat anymore. Um, and so we, when we were looking at Novo, when we were looking into our, um, the, the antibody we've now acquired um, as, a, as a treatment for TTR amyloid, we did a lot of market research. And the HTPs H we talked to said things like, it's a terminal, scary, you know, awful. It was just so horrifying for them because these cardiologists knew, okay, with this diagnosis, this person has you know, two, three uh, years to live, at, which of course now is different because now there are so many therapies coming up, but it really is quite a, a severe phenotype of, of heart failure. And presumably those patients, the, the, the only kind of result would have been transplantation for them at a certain point because there was no other yeah, pharmacologic so option for them. So liver transplantation also um, was a was a therapy. So um, the idea was to get rid of the TTR accumulation, and that's um, one of the routes for therapy. Now, I mean, obviously there are other ways to do it besides removing the liver, but um, to sort of, that was actually one of the, the very um, prominent forms of therapy. That's kind of how severe the condition was. But then you're right. Then transplantation becomes an option. But then if you're, yeah, it, it, it obviously um, is not a perfect solution. So it really, yeah. yeah. So uh, you talked a bit about these uh, mutated states. So some of these are germline and, and are there somatic mutations here as well? Or is it is so is there a mixture of pure hereditary and then acquired change here that can drive this this process? It's a really good question. So there are def the hereditary forms of amyloid disease. There are some very distinctive and known mutations that you know are are hereditary, and um, you can actually look at different regions of the world. And you know, in Portugal and Sweden, there's a dominant mutation. Japan as well. Um, there's a mutation um, in African Americans actually that is, that is quite common in African Americans. Maybe about two percent of of this population has this mutation that causes a, a severe cardiac amyloidosis phenotype. And this is actually one that is missed quite often because as um, it, it's quite tragic, but of course we know that um, socioeconomic factors can influence a patient's kind of medical management down the road. And so it's, it's not uncommon for African-American patients with, you know, again, 12 millimeter thick ventricles, but maybe a little bit of hypertension for their, their internists to sort of say, oh, you, you know, you have high blood pressure, just go take a, you know, antihypertensive, you're fine. And it's like, well, you don't get that thick of a heart by, you know, having mild hypertension. And it, so it's missed quite often. So it's an area where I think we can really make a big difference by improving diagnostics and awareness, which is is skyrocketing right now. Um, there's a lot, a, a very long way to go. But now that we have some therapies um, that are available, of course, it's increasing quite a lot. So, but yeah, so 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 some mutations are predatory, but then others, it does seem to be more of a pretty, um, it, that, that it seems that the protein is fine, but there's some proteolytic steps that break down the protein that might not be fine. And it, it's very much a hypothesis and um, where it's something that we're looking into and I'm sure others are looking into, but it seems like maybe this is one reason why in certain people, um, this, this cardiac deposition is being driven, um, that, that, this, that the TTR is being kind of cleaved up in, into pieces that aren't really supposed to be how, it, how it's working. And the aberrations in those proteolytic pathways, it sounds as if they're not fully 
understood what's driving that, whether it's, you know, epigenetic, whether it's functional change. So is, is that right? That it's not not really well understood and characterised? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So presumably that's also potentially a bit of a hindrance to understanding different components of the pathway you may be able to attack that could be therapeutic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. OK, that's really interesting. So uh, I know um, uh, you and I talked some time ago, there's, there's obviously potentially different angles of attack here to try and uh, handle TTR. Um, and it'd be useful if you could talk us through a bit about those different angles of a, a, attack, because I'm, I'm guessing obviously they all have pros and cons, and then also there may be the propensity to be able to combine some of those mechanisms along the way to, to get a better outcome. So what are the sort of big big ways you can get at this? Yes, so um, it's, a, it's a great and highly relevant question. So for cardiac amyloidosis, the, there is one launched, one approved therapy um, called um, the generic name Tefaminis from Pfizer. And this has been an incredibly successful drug, I think, by, by any metric. Um, and what this drug does, it's called a stabilizer. And so it's basically a small molecule, um, molecular chaperone of the TTR tetramer. So it's a molecule, it just helps to stabilize the TTR in this tetrameric conformation that facilitates its normal vitamin A transport function. Um, and so, and this has this, this drug um, in, in pivotal in clinical trials shows improvement in, um, in mortality, hospitalization, other functional endpoints. It, there's no question that it, it works. Um, and, and it is patients in, across the US are receiving it. it it's really fantastic. Um, the one maybe downside with this with this drug is that it is, and the clinical trial data shows this as well, that it seems to work better the earlier you give it. So if you do look at sort of um, a, a, a post-hoc analyses of the, the ATTRACT trial, which is the one that's sort of first demonstrating the efficacy of tefaminis, in NEHA class 3 patients, so some of the more severe heart failure patients, they didn't really see much benefit compared to NEHA class 1 and 2. And the idea, um, what many people believe to be true, including us at Nova Nordisk, is that it's it's because when you're stabilizing the TTR, you're preventing accumulation um, of the TTR in the heart. So you're you're preventing or you're changing the kinetics. So no longer do you have a net gain in in heart and other tissues, but you're not really removing actively what's already there. Yeah, so yeah. and this is quite a static process. So um, again, you're so patients that maybe don't have particularly severe disease, of course they they benefit compared to no you know no treatment at all. Um, but it's maybe not reversing, and it's, it's certainly not a cure for, for the condition. Um, another class of therapies that is, are not let, yet launched for cardiomyopathy, but are launched in um, neuropathy. Um, and so you can also look at the neuropathy trials and get some really good inf information about whether you'd expect them to work in cardiomyopathy. Um, these are the oligonucleotide-based um, sort of silencers, if you will. And these are um, approaches from so for example, from ionis alnylam, um, where they're they're knocking out the TTR gene in liver. So this is a really these are again there's sort of two generations of um, therapies from multiple companies here, um, and in in neuropathy this works. And the sort of the analyses of cardio of cardiac data from the neuropathy trials also highly are highly um, suggested that this will work in cardiomyopathy as well. But here you're remo again removing the TTR protein, and with the oligonucleotides you can have 85 90 percent. Um, knockdown of the TTR. So again, you're not accumulating any TTR in the heart anymore once therapy has been given. Um, and again, the, and you can look at the, the, the data that um, is available. And again, you see the same sort of thing that patients 
are doing well when they're they're less severe, but in patients with kind of full-blown cardiomyopathy, um, maybe a few of them actually start to recover, um, but not, but most of them sort of just stop getting worse, if you if you see what I mean. And and so again, it's very much a preventative treatment. I think if in, in the hereditary forms of this disease, if you were and actually some companies are looking towards more preventative trials here. So if you can sort of predict the age of onset of a particular mutation, and if you can start dosing a year before that age of onset, that the person would never have any any trouble. Or maybe you know, that's, a, that's a speculation, but the person would have a really, really good outcome, one would predict, that the, the yeah. TTR would never really start accumulating in heart. Um, but yeah, once you start with, um, certainly with wild type patients um, where there is no mutation, you can't really, other than old age, you can't really predict who's going to have this as of yet. Um, it's, it's again, it's a preventative therapy. It's not really a cure. Um, then there, that's kind of what's available in, in clinical trials, um, in more advanced clinical trials. But there are some other kind of next generation approaches, if you will. Um, so at Nova Nordisk, we acquired a monoclonal antibody from a company called Christina that is also quite active in the neurodegeneration space. And what this antibody does, it's a very similar idea um, to the, the Alzheimer's drugs where you're engaging the immune, you're binding to the amyloid plaque that's already accumulating in organs. Um, and you are engaging the immune system to sort of simultaneously bind and kind of actively phagocytose or otherwise remove the amyloid that's already accumulated in tissue. Um, and uh, actually, AstraZeneca have acquired quite a similar monoclonal antibody from neuroimmune um, targeting TTR, cardio cardiomyopathy as well. So there are two of these that are in, um, ours is currently in phase two. Um, I think the, the AstraZeneca neuroimmune um, project, they're waiting for phase 1B kind of readouts, um, but a similar kind of stage. And yeah, these, these molecules our hypothesis anyway is that they will be able to bind to amyloid within the heart and actually deplete the, the amyloid that's already accumulating. So we would hope that this can be, um, that for a patient that already has fairly substantial heart failure, NEHA class three um, would be our kind of bread and butter patient, that in these people we can actually start to not just stop them worsening, but actually reverse the, the course of disease in terms of both functional and heart endpoints. Um, then the last class of therapies is, is actually uh, gene, um, gene editing therapies, which are very exciting. So I'm sure you saw the, um, the, the CRISPR-Cas9 New England Journal paper from, I think, a year or two ago, um, showing the phase one results from IntelliF for Generon um, that looked really quite, they're, they're kind of getting rid of, you know, more than 90%, even at the lower doses um, of their, their therapy, they're getting rid of yeah, more than 90% of TTR. It's, it's a similar conceptual approach to the, the, the oligonucleotide silencers, other than the fact that, of course, this is a more, uh, a, a longer term, longer lasting effect. So I think in the, in the paper they postulated they'd have at no more than yearly dosing, if not even, even longer. So that's, that's also, of course, quite exciting. And that would that be a, also a more preventive approach in common with the TCR approach, silencing approach? Yeah, I think so. I think if you, as a as a scientist, kind of away from if I if I take out any regulatory or payer or you know other other considerations, which are obviously very relevant, but just as a pure scientist, I think the way I would want to see that the treatment played out is, I mean, obviously a preventative treatment um, in the hereditary patients would be great, but then mm -hmm. in patients where that wasn't possible, where the diagnosis happens when they unfortunately have considerable amyloid accumulation already, then the the administration of a um, of of one of an uh, monoclonal antibody depleter to sort of remove the amyloid that's there would be great, and maybe 
one could imagine that this could last for a defined amount of time or, and then switch to either a lower dose or a more preventative therapy in, in the long run. And, and the preventative therapy could be, again, the small molecule cefamidis or next generation small molecule or one of the, the more gene targeting therapies that we discussed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to uh, parallel back into to Alzheimer's uh, here, where where of course it's it, it's been very interesting the back history of uh, using monoclonals for targeting of amyloid, um, and you know over the gosh twenty years I guess of of work that's plus that's been done in this space, uh, a lot of the original trials started out in patients with more advanced dementia with the hope of reduction of amyloid load and, and subsequent amelioration of the declining mm -hmm. cognitive function that, the, that these patients are experiencing. And that, of course, as we all know, proved to be a bit of a dead end. And the, all of these assets then moved upstream into what they call mild cognitive impairment. So pre-dementia Alzheimer's disease, where you've got obviously the disease process, but their declining cognitive function is, is less marked. Uh, and uh, once they found approaches where the side effect profile was more uh, suitable, we've obviously ended up with these two drugs that are now coming through into to the clinical domain and people can start using them. And, and leaving aside the obvious controversy about the, the benefit profile, uh, which we won't get into here, uh, it's been very interesting seeing what happens pathologically and then what you see clinically in these, these patients. And you can see reduction in amyloid load through through imaging and through CSF. And then there has been some modification of the path of decline of their cognitive function, but clearly no uplift. There's no uh, turning the clock back, sadly, here at all. You're just sort of shallowing the curve to some uh, to some extent. And it leads to something very interesting, which is, you know, what, what are we actually doing here? So we know we're taking amyloid out, but obviously the, the, the process around how that impacts neurological function and cognitive function is extremely complicated and actually very poorly understood. So I was going to ask him, mean, what's interesting here is there might be the propensity to turn the clock back, which would be fantastic if you could actually improve cardiac function. And I guess this comes back to what I asked you earlier a little bit about that sort of electromechanical function. And obviously this is not what we parallel in the brain. It, it, it feels like, you know, we've got all this neuronal death going on, pathway disruption, and sadly we can't get that back. We can just prevent perhaps a bit more of the slide of that. So perhaps if you could talk a little bit about how we might be able to improve here and, and, and how that could happen. What's the sort of physiology going on here that, that allows that? Yeah, and again, this is a very speculative answer. So this is more my hope yeah. than any, um, not not all, you know, based in, in data for sure. Um, but I think if you do sort of a thought experiment and you take my heart, which is, you know, reason we hope is reasonably healthy, and you all of a sudden, um, instead of having currently a normal heart is something like 20 to 25% extracellular volume, that is, that that's quite normal, that is, um, yeah, matrix and that kind of thing. But if all of a sudden the extracellular volume is um, like 50, 60% um, of the entire heart and most of that is amyloid, you can just immediately imagine that no matter how healthy my cardiomyocytes are, that the heart is going to be dramatically changed. It's going to be much, much bigger, much thicker, much stiffer. It will not pump blood as, efficient, as efficiently. And this is just by having a completely inert protein kind of put in between the cardiomyocytes. I think that's quite easy to understand that that would be very, very detrimental to this mechanical pumping function of the heart. And then you can e also easily imagine that if you were just suddenly to remove that amyloid plaque, 
that the heart would just get better. It would sort of, you know, maybe it would take a little readjustment, but it would sort of go back to it's this normal pumping function it had before. So it's in, in theory, it's I think pretty easy to see how removing amyloid could theoretically dramatically improve cardiac um, function as measured by pumping function. That being said, I think um, that is probably too simple because I think, I mean, one would imagine that the amyloid is not completely inert. And there is a little bit of data to suggest that the amyloid deposition over time does cause a sort of inflammatory, maybe fibrotic response in the myocardium. So probably, as, as I think is true in, in, in the brain, the, the um, amyloid is sort of actively damaging the tissue around it, certainly over time. So then, um, then the question becomes, okay, so if, if the amyloid has sort of damaged the myocardium and then we remove it, what, what happens is, are we just left with, you know, a shell of, you know, floppy hearts that can't work? Are we actually, or do we actually revert to, to, a, to a sort of more healthy phenotype? And I think, again, we're, we're really hopeful as to what the answer is. There's not really convincing data. There's certainly no peer-reviewed data to sort of suggest one way or the other. Um, but we can point to a few things. So one is anecdotal evidence from some of our um, KOLs and, and subject matter experts from the light chain and TTR amyloid field, where a number of our, um, our consultants have said that they actually do see. So for in the light chain amyloid example, if you can cure multiple myeloma, then all of a sudden there's no TTR, no net flux mm -hmm. of, sorry, of light chain into the heart. And after a couple of years, these patients that might have had quite severe cardiomyopathy go back and their hearts are, are somewhat normal. So that's a, a good piece. And they've seen this apparently many times, you know, a hundred times. So it's not just a one-off. In the TTR space, there are also some anecdotes like that, though I've heard less than in the light chain space. But again, maybe hope that if, if you have a heart that's not too severely damaged, that it can revert back. Then you can also look at some other um, cardiac uh, heart failure data. So um, as I'm, I'm sure you know, patients that have severe class four heart failure that have a, um, LV assist devices put in to sort of help rest the, the um, pumping function of the myocardium, their hearts actually do get better. And this of course is not amyloid related, but if you can sort of improve, remove um, some of the, the disease driving pathogen, that hearts do have some capacity to kind of regenerate, even in this very severe stage. You see the same thing um, after some electrophysiological procedures, you can see hearts starting to recover. If you go back to the 90s and early 2000s from the ACE-ARB kind of data, you can see that fibrosis actually does start to revert, even from that, you know, the, I wouldn't say that they're primarily antifibrogenic drugs. They, they sort of help, they sort of remove fibrosis by generally kind of allowing the, the neurohumoral environment to improve. So I think there is hope that, I mean, it's not just that the heart is completely a static organ and doesn't regenerate. And once it's done, it's done. It definitely does have some capacity to regenerate. Um, and I think what we're really hoping to find is this point, how severe can a heart be where removing amyloids still doesn't just prevent them from getting worse, but actually yeah. can revert. And, and again, it'll be our trial data that, that speaks to where that point is. Um, but I think there's reason to hope that at least in the sort of, we have class two, three patients that they should be okay. And patients, class four patients, are just so fragile, not just from their heart, but from their whole, their whole bodies are just so sick and weak that it's hard to imagine. It's just hard to imagine having a huge therapeutic benefit there. But of course, we'll, um, yeah, we, we can hope for the best now and then see how the data read out. Yeah, and that, wow, that's really fascinating because I think, um, uh, obviously, there are limited parallels with the situation in the, the central nervous system. But I, I guess to me that, there's sort of three things here. There's how um, toxic, and I use that word in the very general sense, the amyloid in the heart might be to the cellular environment and how that 
you know differs from the way that you see that in the brain there's then the sort of innate resistance perhaps of the cardiac myocytes to to whatever toxicity uh, uh, is occurring and then there's the regenerative capacity and obviously in the brain that it, it's some of this is understood a lot of it isn't uh, very well understood but clearly the regenerative capacity is a big problem because once you've taken out all of neuro neuronal functioning people of that, that age their neuroplasticity is very limited um their ability to to well rewire in the crude sense functionally rewire is is, is problematic um so it's very unlikely you're going to get a lot um, back as opposed to just prevent slide D just thinking about those sort of three chunks there if you like uh, are there is there anything different about ttr amyloid and it's you know the toxicity and what's known about that versus cns amyloid is there are there differences there i i don't know and i'm not sure that the comparative studies have been done i'm pretty sure I can remember some studies comparing TTR versus light chain cardiac amyloid. Yep. And, and I think where um, sort of plasma, um, e either um, substance was sort of isolated from mouse plasma and sort of dosed to healthy mice. And from what I recall, the light chain amyloid was quite, had a quite severe impact on, on the healthy mice, whereas the TTR was less so. So my, this is sort of a little bit of yeah. possibly not 100% complete um, literature remembering. And my, my gut feeling is that the TTR is less kind of um, pernicious than the the light chain, for example. So, but I, I can't really say more than that. Yeah, and that's really interesting because, I mean, you get back to your sort of electromechanical piece. If, if, mm. if you take the physicality of it out, it may, that may be the point that the toxicity is less of a, an issue. I mean, I was just thinking also about cardiac myocytes, and I don't know the answer to this either, but actually it's interesting about, you know, are they intrinsically a lot more resistant than neurons are to that kind of damage? Because, of course, that's a... a consideration as well it might be the you know it's just it's a slower course over time with less of that toxicity and certainly from a regenerative perspective it sounds like there's much more of an ability to regenerate even in a, in older age groups which clearly you don't see in the cns so that that that's a big deal i would imagine in terms of the shapes of the curves that you might achieve with these these patients that's very true and just to be clear the, the heart is generally considered to not be a regenerative organ yeah. but it does seem that there is it's clearly not a, a black or white picture um but it, it very i mean the heart is so metabolically active and so resistant to reactive reactive oxygen species for example because of just the extremely high metabolic turnover and extremely high workload it has constantly so that actually might be that might very well be true that it does have some this is of course a different type of pathogen but maybe there is some some sort of resistance anyway and so, so presumably in, in, in preclinical models, people have looked at the impact of uh, that the amyloid has, the CTR amyloid has in terms of markers. So obviously you can look histopathologically, you know, imaging, et cetera, functionally in terms of, heart, you know, cardiac function. But presumably there's something known also about the milieu. And when I use that word toxicity in the broadest sense, what hypotheses there are about how the amyloid induces a toxic effect on cardiac myocytes. So it, what, what's known about that? Sorry, can I, I lost you somewhere in the question. Can you just repeat Oh, yeah, no, sure. Question? About, about is, it, is it understood what that sort of mechanisms of toxicity are of the TTR amyloid on the cardiac myocytes? Not that I'm aware of. I think that there, there's hypotheses that it, it's driving a fibrogenic response and, you know, inflammation of course but but beyond i don't think that there's been much 
literature and certainly not much compelling literature on what the, the exact mechanism might be. Um, interestingly, there's um, the first mouse model of TTR amyloidosis um, that is that uh, that develops in, in heart was published at the end of 21 from um, the group in a group at UCL. And you would imagine that that actually having a mouse model could maybe facilitate some of these mechanistic questions. Um, that's something that we we hope anyway, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting actually, because it sounds as if the the if you like the background basic research into the mechanisms of the disease is is you know is lagged behind. I mean, Alzheimer's there's been a lot of work. Done. Yeah. By the way, I wouldn't say that's necessarily <laughs> led to very many definitive conclusions, but I think you know some of this has been unravelled, and certainly an understanding of the markers that you can see, as you say, in the inflammatory state, for example. I think that there's there is good understanding of, of that. I don't think it's necessarily yielded a lot more insight into <laughs> um, <laughs> where to go next with some of this. And there's obviously a lot of controversy about, you know, what you describe as the amyloid hypothesis in Alzheimer's. I mean, you know, personally, I don't doubt the basic principle here that, that doing something positive with amyloid has an effect. I think the question of whether it's enough clinically is a separate one but I think mm. pathologically at least you can see that something's going on here um, but it's just interesting that maybe there's you know the research there is lags behind for other reasons and that that you know it's going to take a while to to, to unravel that. Yeah I, I think was in cardiomyopathies in general um, <laughs> heart failure has always been considered this sort of you know big black box diagnosis um, and mm. that is slowly starting to change but amyloid, TTR amyloid disease was considered to be so rare and that it was just, there There was very, very little research done into it at all. And I think it's really been, um, when when Pfizer started developing and then launched um, this drug to Feminist that came from the biotech Fold, Fold RX um, out of Scripps originally, um, they, I mean, having a therapy all of a sudden drives this, this sort of urge to diagnose patients, you know, all of a sudden you, you figure out that there are diagnostics that work pretty broadly, that there are patients that exist, that, and then that there is this, this fairly giant market. And then when you sort of understand all of this, then the, the need for precision medicine, biomarkers, better diagnostics, AI, ML type of analyses of, of ECG, whatever it is, all of this drives more and more research. So I think this is going to be catching up quite quickly. Um, but you can also see it in other forms of genetic cardiomyopathy where you talk to KOLs in, in genetic cardiomyopathy and, and they're sort of like, oh, I've been working on this gene for 20 years and nobody cared about me until the last two years. Now I'm everybody's favorite. <laughs> it's so, everyone says the same. It's so funny. But it's the same when heart failure is just considered this one big blanket thing. But actually, if you break down, I mean, heart failure, the definition of which is basically like a condition where your heart fails and you're you know sick. That's like the AHA definition to paraphrase. And so when you can actually break that down into specific genes, specific pathogens, specific mechanisms, and all of a sudden there's there's so much you can learn. But we're really, for all cardiomyopathies, we're really just at the start of that journey kind of in the last the last couple of years. So um, it's definitely an exciting place to do research, but also, and this is something that is the same, I guess, for, for Alzheimer's research, getting cardiac uh, biopsy samples is not trivial. Yeah. And it's, yeah, so it's, um, that that's obviously always going to slow the pace of research to some degree. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, I was reading an article the other day actually about the sort of resurgence in cardiovascular trials within the pharma industry. And I mean, you know, I go back to the late 90s and early 2000s when I started my um, I started my career. And of course, that was a sort of era of these enormous, you know, longitudinal <laughs> trials, you know, 15, 20,000 patient studies. And, 
you know, in, in, in more recent history, the industry has focused its attention in other areas, but it feels like the pendulum has swung again. And we're back to rightly considering cardiovascular disease alongside, you know, particularly oncology and, and some areas of neuroscience that the industry focused very heavily on. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely yeah, more hope, I think. Um, I was going to ask you, one, one of the areas, um, obviously, about utilising these monoclonal antibodies against amyloid in the brain is that, this has been associated with inflammatory reactions, edema, uh, and these are obviously very material considerations in utilising the therapeutics. And again, if you go back into to, uh, history, I remember I worked on a couple of the earlier monoclonals uh, that Pfizer had actually at the, 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 the time, and I'm trying to remember it. It all feels like yesterday, really, but this, is, this must be 15 plus years ago. I think I was involved in this. And they had their side effect profile was just inappropriate. You know, there were too high rates of, of ARIA events and those programs were shelved. And, and we still see some of that clearly with the, the, the ones that have gone through into clinical usage now. In terms of that, that parallel and to doing the same thing in the heart, taking out the amyloid, and you, you said this is your monoclonal, it's got a presumably an active FCN so that it can allow that phagocytic processes, cellular engagement to happen. Is there, I know the stuff's still in development and sitting in mid-phase, what, what are the sort of potential consequences there and how, how does that play out? What, what has been seen in models, for example, around that? Uh, so what has been seen in models around what specifically, uh, sorry? Yeah, around what, what uh, potential side effects there may be of taking the amyloid out. So is there a, yeah. is there a side to that, you know, or a, a, a parallel side effect? Yes. So one caveat is that with so few um, models of, of cardiac amyloidosis, so a really great preclinical study has not yet been done. And so the, the trial, the preclinical studies have involved, have either been ex vivo in vitro or sort of depositing TTR under a mouse skin or, you know, under the, the fur sort of in a sort of depot um, and, and then just seeing what happens. So not, I, I feel like the, the, side effect question is, is maybe not super easy to address. Um, but you, you certainly see a, an initial inflammatory, an acute phase inflammatory response. You know, your correlate of this is, you know, basic things like consciousness and cognitive ability and that kind of yeah. thing, which in an elderly population yeah. can be problematic. But um, yeah, we have, yeah. I mean, we have echo, we have MRI, we have ECG. I mean, to actually, and basically what we want to do is improve the heart's ability to pump. So that's pretty easily attainable through through non-invasive methods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 fascinating though. So I think I think I mean to me what you know getting away from if you like the parallel, the 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 difference here, which I think is genuinely really exciting, is that the possibility of potentially turning the the, the clock back and that taking the amyloid out may allow, you know, the modest regeneration, but the return of function through that electromechanical effect in a way that you you know sadly we don't see in in in, in the brain is that yeah, and of course it's always easy to easier to hypothesize before you actually have the data that you have to yeah no no face with but um i think it's it's plausible it, it's definitely plausible and it's something that we we hope that we we can see um i think that that's very safe Yes, yeah. Well, you know, and those those trials are ongoing. I guess uh, in the not too distant future, we'll know uh, yeah. what comes out into clinical uh, clinical benefit and what the side effect profile may look like, and um, that accompanies that. 